this morning we're going to be in uh, Hosea again, Hosea chapter number 9. And we're going to pick back up here on our series that we've been looking at, Messy Love. And uh, today is a rather interesting passage, uh, primarily because I tell you, as we're going to go through this passage this morning, um, you're going to find that there is no hope whatsoever for this nation of Israel. Um, this morning, God is basically going to get down to brass tacks. And uh, kind of funny thing, in your bulletin there, when we were uh, doing it, I asked Jamie, she said, what's your message title? I said, getting down to brass tacks. And I thought she knew what I was talking about. So she put on there, brass tacks, T-A-X. I saw that, and I was like, no, we're not talking about tax. <laughs> So anyways, but uh, if you understand the meaning of getting down to brass tacks, it's, it's basically a, a saying that we use to basically say, here is the final say-so. This is, this is getting down to the essentials here. Um, we're, not, we're not messing around anymore. And that's exactly what God is doing here in this passage. Because if you remember, Hosea is a, is a deathbed prophet. In other words... Hosea was kind of the last prophet before the nation of Israel was destroyed. And he is warning his people and he's saying, you're doing this. You just need to return back to me. You need to come back to me. And the people don't do it. And you'll see as we go through this passage here this morning of how they actually viewed God's warnings. And God just basically gets down to brass tacks and he says, listen... um, I'm not pulling any punches with you this morning. I'm not, I'm not trying to kind of sugarcoat the message. Uh, God says, this is something that is essential in your life. And he says, this is, this is some hard, strong language that I'm giving you. You know, one of the core values that we believe here at Pleasant Ridge is that we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And not only that, but we believe that the Bible has authority... To speak to us. In other words, God's word says exactly what it says that it says. It's not something that uh, God says, well, these are some things that could possibly happen. God says, this is what I say, and this is what goes. Um, He's not going to sit there and try to sugarcoat the message for us. And so when we come to a passage like this, there's two things that we can do with that. One, we can look at it and say, well, it's kind of irrelevant for us today because we don't really live in the times of uh, the nation of Israel. Or, number two, we can look at this passage and take heed, take warning uh, to understanding what God is trying to say, uh, even to us here in 2017. So God has given each of us this passage here for us this morning because he wants us to hear it. He wants us to know exactly what he is saying. He wants us to impart the the scriptures to our own heart and take wisdom from them and learn from them. So we need to learn how to trust God's word and we need to learn from God's word, especially when it comes to a passage uh, like this in uh, Hosea chapter number 9. And you say, well, why is that? Well, because God knows better. Than all of us, he knows better than than our own human intuition. He knows better than than what we could possibly think about or scheme about. God knows exactly what's in our hearts, and he he wants to show us what's in our hearts. 
because he's trying to get us to learn something about himself. So as we look here at this uh, book of Hosea, God is telling the people here in Israel in this passage that he'll come in judgment. And it's primarily because of their sin. As we looked at the past in the, all the other chapters, uh, God gave us specific details why he's bringing judgment upon the nation of Israel. And it's primarily because they went after whoring after other gods. Uh, they went after uh, the gods of Egypt and they also went after the gods of Assyria. And God says, you've forgotten me. You've forgotten your maker. You've forgotten that I'm the one that you're supposed to love. And remember, God sent, uh, gave the message to Hosea. And he said, go out and marry a, a woman that is going to be unfaithful. Uh, because I'm going to show Israel a picture of how you are showing your love towards me. So we see in this passage, God says, he shall. I want you to notice that every, when we go through the scripture here, It says that he shall or he will several times. These are things that are going to happen. This is not just something that's going to be like, well, it might happen. God says, no, these things will happen. And so God is getting down basically to brass tacks here. So I said this because I want you to look at this passage this morning as a message that When we look at it just all by itself, it seems very, um, it it seems like a message that does not have any hope in it whatsoever. But when we place this passage within the grand scheme of all of scripture, this passage actually gives us great hope. Because when we read through this, we're going to see some very, very hopeless situations as God is describing to his nation what he thinks about them, how he feels about them, and what he will do to them. So today we're going to look at the passage and this message of this passage. Then we are going to take a step back and we're going to plug this in with all in the grand scheme picture. Okay, And we're going to go through a few verses at a time. And as we go through them, I'm going to read to you uh, the verses, and then I'll give uh, a brief explanation of the verses. Because I only have two points this morning. That's it. Okay? But it's at the very end. So we're going to look at all the verses. I'm going to give a brief explanation. And then we'll bring those two points uh, home uh, together. So the big picture that I want all of us to see here this morning is that we won't see what an amazing Savior that we have until we don't see the depth of our problem. And that's what uh, God is going to describe here for the nation of Israel, the depth of their problem, their sin problem that they have. And when we take that and we reflect upon our own lives, we won't understand and see what an amazing Savior that Jesus really is until we look inwardly and see how horrible of people that we really are in our sinful state. So for us to see the fullness of Jesus, we need to see him for what he has saved us from. So let's look, take a look here at this passage here, and uh, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, dive into this passage. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity we have uh, to look into your word. And I pray as we go through these uh, scriptures that you will enlighten us, that you will teach us. Um, Father, you are the great teacher. You're the one that teaches us all things, that you guides us, you guide us into all truth. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will, will direct us, that, that uh, he will enlighten us, and that uh, he will help us understand 
uh, exactly what this passage says to us this morning. Thank you so much for this group of, of Christ followers here that meets here. And Lord, will you just please bless them and, and help them in their own personal faith walk as they live out their faith day to day. And help us to see what a great, amazing Savior uh, that you have provided for us in your son, Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So let's look here. Hosea chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. He starts out here and he says, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria." As this passage starts out, it almost appears as if there's a celebration going on. I mean, they're rejoicing and they're exalting. And God says, I don't want you to rejoice and I don't want you to exalt. Why? Because God tells them, you need to stop the party because God is going to bring judgment upon your sin. It's almost as if they're excited about maybe a harvest of crops that have just recently come in, whether it be wine or whether it be uh, the, the crops that have come in on the threshing floor. And God says, you need to stop rejoicing. I mean, this was a time of prosperity in this, in this nation's time. There was an abundance of crops. There was an abundance of things going on. And yet they were continuing in their sin, worshiping false gods. And God says, I do not want you to worship. Remember in the previous chapters as we looked at that they said where they got all of their blessings that came from. They didn't ascribe them to God. They were ascribing them to their other lovers. They said, Baal gave me this. Baal gave me that. Baal gave me all of these things. And God says, I don't want you to rejoice and exalt in this. Stop the party. It's kind of like, you know, the kids are, are uh, at home. They're having a party. Parents away. Dad rolls up and he comes in there, shuts the music off. And he says, all right, everybody go home, clean the house up. It's kind of the same idea here. God is saying, stop the party. You need to understand that judgment is coming in your land. And so through this judgment, God will kick his people out of the promised land. Look what he says here. It says, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. I mean, this is the promised land that was given to them. God says, I'm going to give you everything here. And he says, you're going to be kicked out of it now. And he says here, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So God is saying judgment is coming. They're going to be exiled to Assyria. We know that that ends up happening in 732 BC as the nation is destroyed and they're carried off into Assyria. And so once the people of Israel are kicked out of the promised land, they will no longer be able to worship. Notice what he says here. He says, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord. You see, worship in the Old Testament was intricately involved with the temple. And so if they are removed out of their land, they're not going to be able to go back to the temple and worship. It'd be kind of like this. You know, we have this building. This building is not the church. This is just four walls, glass, carpet, chairs, and nails, and screws, and plaster, and paint. Okay? I probably missed a few other things in there, but that's okay. But anyways, we, have, we are using this building for our worship time. And it'd be almost like as if this building was completely removed. We were not able to meet here. You'd say, well, we can't go and worship. Yeah, we still can worship. We don't need this building to worship. But God here in this chapter here is saying he is removing them completely out of the area where they can actually go and worship 
the Lord in the temple. They're not allowed to go back to the temple anymore because they're going to be carried off into Assyria. They'll be dragged away from the temple and they will no longer be able to sacrifice to God. So let's continue reading here in Hosea 9. Let's look here, verse number 4 through 6. He says, They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please them. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? God is asking these questions. What are you going to do now? Because you're not going to be in your temple anymore to worship me. He says, For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. So he speaks here of nettles and of possessing their precious things of the temple and thorns in their tents. It means that their land will be deserted and will return into the wilderness, almost like a ghost town. If you've ever been out into the West, uh, there are several ghost towns still in existence today. And you go there, and I mean, completely abandoned towns. I mean, you, you see things that were built up, and now they're just desolate, completely gone. It's kind of like, you know, those old Western movies, you know, the tumbleweeds blowing Yeah, God says, I'm going to turn your land into a ghost town. There's not going to be anything left for you there. And these are some things that God says, I will do this. Let's continue reading here, Hosea chapter 9, beginning in verse number 7. He says, the days of punishment have come now. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. You see, part of the problem for the people is that they refuse to listen to the prophets. I mean, we're not talking about just one prophet that came and said, hey, God's going to destroy your country. We're talking prophet after prophet after prophet, year after year after decade after decade after century after century. God has been merciful to his people, and yet they will not hear the prophets. So God sends these prophets to the people to warn them. And notice what they, in turn, say about these prophets. They say that they're fools. They say that the man with the spirit is mad. He's crazy. The people refuse to listen to the prophets, and instead they call them fools and they call them crazy. They did not want to listen to exactly what God wanted them to hear. And in turn, what ends up happening is God does destroy this nation. Notice here what it says here. It says that they have corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. What in the world is that talking about? Well, if you read in the Old Testament, especially in uh, Judges chapter 19 through 21, there's an event that takes place. There's a Levite that has a concubine. And they go into this town of Gibeah. And as they're there in Gibeah, the men of the city there... And it's the tribe of Benjamin that was living there in Gibeah. 
the men of the city go over there and they start to beat on the door wanting that Levite man. Sound kind of familiar? Remember Genesis uh, chapter, I think it's 21, where the men of Sodom go into the land there and they're beating on the door wanting a lot to come out into the city because they wanted to basically gang rape him. Well, this is what's going on. God says, you people have corrupted just like the men of Gibeah. And so that Levite there with the concubine, what he decides to do is he sends his concubine out of the door there. And they basically gang rape her and leave her dead on the doorstep. And what that Levite does is he takes her body, cuts it up into, I think it's 12 different pieces and sends a part to each one person of the tribe of Israel. Well, people were outraged at this. And so they go to the town of Gibeah, the other nations, they go there, and they almost completely annihilate the people of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And God spares them from that. And so God says, this is a hopeless situation here. You people, he's saying to the, people, the nation of Israel here in this time, he's saying, you have corrupted yourselves almost as like the men of Gibeah during that time in Judges uh, chapter 19 through 21. So God here is painting a very bleak picture for us. But things were not always this way. Things did not start out this way. Things, things have changed. Things have, things have happened for them to get to this point. It's not like one day they woke up and decided, hey, I'm going to start worshiping a, a, a false god. It didn't happen that way. This was years after years after years of them getting to this point. Listen to these next few verses, how God describes them, how he found them and how they used to be. He says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal pure and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. So here he uses two analogies to describe his delight in his people. First of all, he uses like grapes in the wilderness. Have you ever been on a a hiking trip somewhere or maybe uh, gone someplace and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you find something that you wouldn't expect to find out there? My dad, he used to work out of town a lot when I was a kid doing construction. And he told me he went to... uh, Let's see, I think it was called Chimayo, New Mexico. And out in Chimayo, New Mexico, there is basically nothing. Well, they were building a building out there. Forget what it was that they were building. And he said, you know, I didn't take a lunch with me that morning. He, he got up and he drove and he was going to be working out of town. He got up and he drove. And he's like, yeah, I'll just stop at the, you know, the gas station or whatever and things like that. And he gets out there. There's nothing. There's no convenience store that he can go get a lunch, nothing. And he said he was literally just so thirsty that there was some water that he had found, some dirty water, and he drank it because he was just so thirsty. And it was, it was almost like a blessing. Oh, man, here's water. Well, God says, just like this, he says, the nation of Israel, he says, I found you like grapes in the wilderness. You wouldn't expect to find grapes in the wilderness. It's an unexpected delight. 
Then he says the first fruit of a fig tree. He says the first figs of the season are especially sweet and delicious. And God uses these two analogies to paint a picture that this is how he found the nation of Israel. He found them like grapes in the wilderness. and He found them as if they were the first fruit of the fig tree. But he says something has happened. Something has changed. And what has changed? He says, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. He says that they came, they consecrated, and then they became. So God here describes how things changed. Baal Peor refers to a place here that the people came to, that they went to, to go and worship these other gods. And notice what the text here, it says that when they consecrated themselves, when they gave themselves to this place to go and worship these other gods, they became detestable like the thing that they loved. You see, even before the people made it to the promised land, they began to worship idols. You remember as when, even when they were on the, uh, on the mount there, when Moses went up to the mount and Aaron was left down there, the people still were like, Aaron, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy. You're going to have to do something for us, Aaron. We, we don't know what's happened. He's been up there 40 days. We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, you're in charge. You make us an idol. We'll worship it. Aaron's like, okay, give me all your, uh, you know, rings of gold and all that kinds of stuff. And, They make a golden calf and they start to worship it. So these people, they had idol worship in their heart already. And so this wasn't just something that just happened overnight. This is years of this. You see, there's a spiritual principle behind all of this. And that spiritual principle is this. You will become what you worship. In other words, if you spend all of your time and all of your energy on something or something that that is not good for you, you will become like that. In Psalm 115, verse number 8, describing idols, God says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Our text here openly says, what you worship will change you. It always does and it always has. People that spend their time on certain things and and give their money to certain things, those things end up controlling that person. We see it time and time and time again. And God's saying here to this nation, he's saying, you have become like that detestable thing that you worship. So God here is going to bring his judgment against his people. And listen to how God is going to describe how he's going to do this. And this is where it gets very, a very hopeless situation. Look here at verses number 11 through 14. He says, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? And this is what God's going to give them. Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breast. This is a very, very bleak picture that the, that the prophet Hosea is telling his people. 
He's saying, even if you were to have children, they're going to be killed. He's saying, I'm not going to allow your family to continue. I'm not, I, I am through with you, Israel. And so here God gets down basically to the brass tacks of his judgment against his people. And his God's judgment would include being destroyed in warfare. And he describes it here as being described as slaughter. It would include a shrinking and a decreasing of their population. In the Old Testament, physical descendants are described as the sign of God's blessing. Remember when God was speaking to Abraham and he's saying, I will bless you, I will multiply you. As, as many as there are the stars in the heaven, as many grains of sand on all of, the, all of the shores. He says, I'm going to multiply you and I'm going to bless you. But here, now he says, there's going to be a decreasing in your population. There's going to be no more babies. There's going to be no more children. He says, I'm through with you, Israel. When God comes in judgment, he's going to take away that blessing for their life. Let's continue reading here. Hosea chapter 9, verse 15 through 16. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. So God here again continues to describe his judgment in very strong terms. And now that brings us here to verse number 17, our final verse, a summary verse of God's judgment. And listen to what he says. My God will reject them because they have not listened to them. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Now see, if we're not careful, we look at a passage like this and we say, boy, God's got some serious, serious issues with this nation. And we can almost divide up God in the Old Testament and say, well, here he is in the Old Testament. He's mad and he's angry and he's, he just, he's so jealous. But then we go over to the New Testament and we say, well, now God's all happy and he's loving. You know, I mean, you know, all that, you know, for God so loved the world stuff. You see, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So how do we deal with a passage like this where God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm getting down to brass tacks. There's no mercy for you. There's no hope for you. I'm going to destroy your children. I mean, those are strong, strong words for a nation. How do we put that all in the same picture? We see in our passage today, God would reject his people because they have not listened to him. God spoke to them the Bible, but they refused to listen to him. God spoke to them through the prophets, but they refused to listen to him. You see, God was speaking to them, but God was warning them, but they refused to listen to him. So warning after warning, time and time and time after again, God says... I've been giving you warnings, but you will not listen to me. So this is our passage today. And do you see what I mean when I say that this is a hopeless situation? That this this message is not a message of necessarily hope? 
But see, if we just look just at that passage, it looks that way. But when we plug that passage in with all of the rest of the Bible, this passage has great meaning. You say, how so? Well, see, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a repeating pattern that comes in all of the prophets. You'll see this time and time and time after again. If you read through the prophets, you'll see this pattern repeating itself through all the prophets. And here they are, okay? First of all, you see, it starts with God's goodness and love towards his people. He tells us in verse number 10, there's grapes in the wilderness. He said the first fruit of the fig trees. In verse 13, he said like a young palm planted in a meadow. God is describing his love towards his people. He says, I'm good to you. I love you. I care about you. And then, here's the second pattern that you always see in all the prophets. The people rebel against God. So, God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the people are like, nope, don't want to listen. I don't care about your love. I could care less, could care less, could care less. And so, they rebel against God. They run after other gods. They run after those other uh, false idols that God says you're not to worship. And they rebel against them. And then thirdly, you see this other one. You see, therefore, God will come upon them in judgment. And this is a repeating pattern that you see throughout all of the prophets in the Old Testament. God says, I love you. You rebel. And God says, I'm going to judge you. So, how are we supposed to deal with a passage like this? How are we supposed to apply this to our own individual life? I mean, it's not like we're sending our, uh, our children like Ephraim out to slaughter. It's not like God says, I'm going to uh, dry up your wombs. How are we supposed to apply this to our own individual life? You see, God has included this passage in here intentionally because he wants us to learn something from it. He wants us to learn something about himself. He wants us to learn something about him. Well, here's what we learn. And here's my two points. First of all, we see this. Number one, the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's judgment. You see, God is not playing games. There is a seriousness to sin. And there is a reality of God's judgment. You know this as well as I do when we talk to people about the Lord and we we tell them, you know, that Jesus Christ is the only way. Many times they look at you and they think you're crazy. They think, oh, well, surely, you know, no, 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 no. You see, I got it all figured out. When I die, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to show him every good thing that I've ever done in my life. God would surely never send me to a place called hell. But see, what they fail to realize is that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. You see, when Jesus was on the face of the earth, Jesus spoke about judgment a lot. In fact, he spoke about hell more than any other person. And so there's a seriousness of God's judgment. There's a seriousness side of God's judgment. And we cannot sit there and take that and say, oh, well, God's just going to kind of, you know, sugarcoat it. I mean, we're living in the day of grace, Mike. Yeah, I understand that. But still, God is a righteous God. He's still a a God of, of holiness and judgment. And we can't dismiss that. We have to take that into account that there's a seriousness of sin and the reality of God's judgment. You see, descriptions of God's judgment are not only found in the Old Testament. They're found throughout all of the New Testament as well. And God does this for a reason because he wants us to see the seriousness 
of sin and the reality of his judgment. You see, the issue that all of us face is that we really think that we're all really not that bad of people. But God says different. He says, there's a seriousness to this. And it's the fact that I will judge your sin. You see, if we were left to ourselves, we would see our sin in comparison to other people. And we would make that comparison and say, well, at least I'm not like that guy or like that guy or like them. Because really, I'm actually a pretty awesome guy. Because we all look in the mirror and we love ourselves, do we not? But God says there's a seriousness side of sin. And that seriousness of sin brings judgment in our own life. You see, the Bible doesn't just point the finger at the ancient Israelites and say, well, it's your fault. You see, the Bible points a finger at us and says, no, it's your fault as well. As the scripture teaches us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, on our own, we have made ourselves into God's enemies. On our own, we are in this hopeless situation. So when we read a passage like this in Hosea chapter 9, with its harsh description of of judgment that's going to come upon this nation, it should hit us deep in our own soul. We should look at that and we should say, wow, if God is not even willing to spare his own nation whom he loves and whom he's chosen, why on earth would I think that I'm any any better? Why would I look at myself and think, well, you know, I got something God really likes about me. Because the reality is we're all in the same boat of sin. We all have that that sin nature within us. So we don't want to minimize these strong words, these harsh words that God gives in Hosea chapter number 9. We must look at them and say, yeah, God is going to bring judgment upon sin. So what are we supposed to do? Well, that brings us to the second point here. And so when we plug this passage in with all of, all of Scripture, that helps us see that Jesus is our precious Savior. You see, this is our hope. This is, this is what we focus in on. This is the only way that, that man's predicament can be solved. And it's the only way that God has sent his only son, Jesus, to be our Savior, his perfect son. You see, Jesus died on the cross as our substitute to receive the judgment that God brought. And so we are safe and secure in Jesus Christ. So when we read a passage like this in Hosea 9, it is a strong reminder to us that, yes, God, there is a seriousness to our sin and there's a seriousness to judgment. But thank you, Jesus, for taking our judgment for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the judgment of of God upon yourself. You see, if we have trusted Christ, Jesus is our precious Savior. Knowing Him and what He has done for you changes everything about your life. For example, you know what the difference is between a cold and a cancer? You say, well, yeah, of course I do. How many of you ever had a cold before? Okay, very good. You know, when you have a cold, you're like, oh man, this is, this is lousy. And you get over the cold and you're like, oh man, I feel a lot better. But it's not life changing, is it? You're not like going around testifying saying, I had a cold, but now I've been cured. But you talk to somebody who's had cancer. You talk to somebody who's went through the, went through the treatments and went through the, went through the harsh difficulty of that. And then when they, get, when they get the good news from the doctor that they're clear and it's no longer there, 
It's life changing for them. You see, that's the difference between us. We didn't just have a cold, we had cancer. And Jesus Christ has changed us and he's, he's saved us and he's healed us from that. And it's been life-changing, life-altering in our life. So do we see what a beautiful and precious Savior of Jesus that we really have? When we look at a passage like this, we say, boy, this is hopeless. But when I look at my own life and I look back and I look at the, 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 the sin and, and the, 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 um, the horrible place that I was in in my, in my sin and, and, and the judgment of God that was upon my life, I look back at that and I say, boy, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for not leaving me there out on my own to destruct. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing salvation in my life. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, God's judgment is certain for every person. So do we really believe that those who have never trusted Christ is lost, eternally lost, apart from Jesus? You see, if we really believe this, how would it change how we live? How would it change how we pray, how we love, and how we serve? How would it change how we share the good news of Jesus Christ? Because if Jesus really is our precious Savior, then he has saved us from from God's judgment. He has saved us from being separated from him forever in hell. Has that changed us? Or is it the same O, same O? God has changed us dramatically. He's changed us drastically. God has given us the great treasure of Jesus Christ that spared us and can spare others from the fierce judgment of God. I pray that you take a passage like this and you look at this and not look at it saying, yeah, those Israelites, I can't believe they would do something like that. But then we look at a passage like that and say, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. I've done the exact same things. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Let's pray. 